Good morning. Good to see you again. For those who don't know me, my name is Joshua Smith, and I would uh, like to start off this morning with a brief missionary update. For those of you who, who don't know, my wife and I are missionaries, have been for the last 20 years. I currently serve as an area leader over Latin America and Caribbean. Although we're based here for a few years, I'll be traveling throughout the continent as well as having lots of online meetings and trainings and such. But this last month, uh, Naomi and I were actually able to go back to Mexico City, where we served for 10 years. And I just wanted to let you know that God continues to do some really good work there. Uh, we had the opportunity to meet with the board of our ministry network of 30-plus churches and organizations that are working together to plant churches and develop churches, and things continue to move forward in that network. Uh, in fact, in April and then in September, I plan on returning to help offer a training in terms of uh, missions, what missions looks like for Latin Americans. And Naomi will be offering a hermeneutics training for women who can then train others. And then our church plant there uh, continues to grow uh, in numbers. They've seen baptisms. And uh, this last Sunday was their seven-year anniversary. So that was pretty exciting. I don't know when you stop calling them a church plant. But, um, but maybe more, most exciting for, for me was talking with our pastor there, David Sarmiento, who God gave us the privilege of helping raise up as a leader. And he and his wife are actually now raising support to leave Mexico City uh, in order to serve God as missionaries in Paris, France, where less than 2% of the population are evangelical believers. And I'm hoping you guys will actually get a chance to meet him at some point because in April he's coming to Wichita to train a group of Spanish-speaking pastors there as part of a broader ministry opportunity. So also, if any of you would like to get our regular email updates, we send out an update every two or three months, uh, please just send me an email. It's in your bulletin under the announcements. Uh, if you want to send me spam mail, mail, then you can send that to the church office instead. But if you'd like to <laughs> get our updates, please send me an email. We'd love to keep you up to date. So when Naomi and I, we when we first moved to Mexico City in 2011, uh, we quickly recognized that there were two significant challenges facing the evangelical church in Mexico City. The first was a crisis of mission, and the second was a crisis of identity. We saw a crisis of mission because very few churches in the city were actively trying to plant churches in the city itself. They would occasionally send people out to villages, uh, but they'd simply, as it looked like, they'd given up on boldly engaging the city itself with the gospel in new ways because it was just too hard and expensive and time-consuming. And that was a terrible mistake. Uh, first of all, because Mexico City is one of the most influential economic, cultural, and educational centers in the Western world. And secondly, because at least 21 million of them in the city do not yet know Jesus. There's still a lot of work to be done. So there was a clear crisis of mission among the evangelical churches. But there was also a crisis of identity in the Mexican church. According to one study, there were approximately 9% of the population considers itself evangelical Christian. The vast majority would be Roman Catholic. 
But of that 9% in the same study, it came out that half of those, almost half of those, also self-identified as non-practicing evangelicals. Like, what in the world does that mean, right? Well, we found out what it meant, because shortly after moving there, we began to see that many Mexican Christians had created a radical separation between the sacred and the secular, between their Sunday mornings and their Monday through Saturday. And I think that can be illustrated pretty well with an experience we had in our first few months in Mexico City. So we moved into this, this home, uh, and within a month or two, someone from the electric company came to our house to cut off our power, okay? Because a previous renter had not paid a bill. And I, I asked the, the worker, I begged him, please like, give us a chance to, to make this right, because this obviously wasn't our fault, and we really like to have power for my family. <clears throat> and, uh, and he very graciously offered to help me out if I would give him a bribe. And so with my bold gospel witness, I said, look, I'm, I'm a Christian, and that means I can't pay you a bribe. And he responded surprisingly by saying, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> but what I'm offering you is a material service, not a spiritual service. And then he cut off our electricity. <laughs> so the church in Mexico City, like many of our own churches currently in the United States and throughout the world, was facing a crisis of mission and a crisis of identity, two issues that are actually deeply related with one another. So who are we as God's people? Are we just a nice religious club? A Sunday morning meeting? A political interest group? A place to develop better values or have a spiritual pick-me-up? And how does our identity relate to how we actually live our lives, both in terms of our overarching purpose and in terms of our daily practices? Those aren't just questions for the Mexican church. They're questions for me and they're questions for each of you. So this morning, I would like to look at our identity and mission as God's people, as God's church, as those who trust in Jesus, to examine who we are in Jesus and why it really matters. If you're in the youth group, I gave an initial version of this a few months ago to you. I hope to fill it out this morning and get a little deeper. So please look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 10. That will be our primary text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray. 
Father, may your spirit work through your word in our hearts that we might know who we are in Jesus and that we might understand the mission you've given us and be empowered to fulfill it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, is a powerful passage about the identity and mission of the church. But to really understand it, we need to see how it fits into the bigger story, into God's story. So this morning, I, I want to start our time by taking you on a little journey, okay? A little journey that starts in Genesis 1 and culminates right here in our passage, 1 Peter 2. And you can try to follow along in your Bibles, but you don't have to because it's going to be kind of quick. The story starts in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, when God creates Adam and Eve, and he says this, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So in the beginning, God created man and woman in the image of God himself so that they might be a people for himself who would reflect his image, his glory, his goodness to the world. And they did it, right? Not for very long. Instead of filling God's world with his image, with his beauty and truth and justice, Adam and Eve instead chose the path of sin, of independence from God, of rebellion. Instead of filling the world with God's glory, they filled the world with wickedness and violence. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, the world is so filled with violence that God decides to essentially start over, wiping the world clean through a worldwide flood, saving only one man and his family, the righteous man Noah. And then we find Noah and his family in chapter 9, verse 1, we find them leaving the ark after the floods have subsided. And what does God do? If you look in Genesis 9-1, we find that God gives them the exact same command He had given to Adam and Eve. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. <clears throat> and this time they did it, right? Nailed it. No. Two chapters later, in Genesis 11, we find that humanity fails once again. Instead of fulfilling their mission and filling the earth with the glory of God, they instead gather together against God at the Tower of Babel. And God has to cast them out so they will fill the earth. But God's not done because God's purposes will be accomplished. And so, in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, 
God calls out one man from the face of the earth, Abram, later called Abraham, and God makes this incredible promise to him in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, saying, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abraham that he will create a nation out of him, and that through him, all the earth will be blessed. Another way of saying, in a sense, that all the world will be filled with the glory of God. And Abraham does respond in faith. And then over the next 500 years... God shapes and directs world history in order to fulfill His promise. And we find that initial fulfillment of the promise in the nation of Israel. From one man, God creates a whole nation. In the book of Exodus, next book over, we find God rescuing that nation from slavery in Egypt so that they might fulfill his original purpose to create a people for himself who might reflect his glory throughout the earth. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, right before they receive the Ten Commandments, God tells Israel, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had called Israel into existence so that Israel might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means that they are meant to be his agent of mission in the world so that through their holiness and wisdom and love and justice, they might fill the world with the glory of God and point this now broken world to his greatness and to his mercy so that God would be glorified in them and so that all the families of the earth might be blessed in him. You see how it's all tied together? But just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah's descendants, they too failed. Instead of living for the sake of the world, they began to live just like the world. And they began to live for themselves. You can read the prophets, you can read the gospels. It's the same story over and over maintenance became more important than mission. Sustaining their religious program became more important than engaging their gospel purposes. And so God cast them out of the promised land, exiling them among the pagan nations around them, like Eden, like the flood, like the Tower of Babel. This was a disaster of epic proportions. 
But God was still not done with them or with His purpose for the world. We find a little later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verse 21, God speaks of a new day, a future day, in which He will gather His chosen people. It says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We find a similar idea in the book of Hosea, a little bit later in the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 1, God gives Hosea a hard task. As an act of prophetic judgment against Israel, he makes Hosea name his two children, no mercy and not my people. That'd be tough in junior high, right? Those two names. So Israel has been cut off from God. There is no mercy and they are not my people. But they haven't been cut off forever. Because in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, God again promises a future day of restoration, saying in Hosea 2, 23, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now I want to go back to our text, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and I want to read it again. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does that sound at all familiar? They're the very words we just read in Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, and Hosea 2. Peter is telling us that the same mission and identity that was meant to characterize and to direct Israel as God's people in the past is also meant to characterize and direct us as God's people in the present, as His church. It is a beautiful and precious calling. Now let's unpack this passage a bit. First of all, we see in 1 Peter 2.9, that God has given us a new identity in Jesus. God has given us a new identity in Jesus. It says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Now, it's easy to look at Adam and Eve and Noah's family and Israel and say, What a bunch of screw-ups. I would have never done that. 
But the Bible makes clear that that's exactly what we would have done. That's what we do every time we sin. We have failed in the exact same ways. We have all sinned against God, and the consequence of sin is death, destruction. But God in His mercy has not left us there hopeless and helpless. He has entered into this story through the person of Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And what did God in the flesh do for us? He celebrated earlier. He died for our sins, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And then He bodily rose from the dead in immortal glory and defeated the power of our great enemy, death itself. So for those who trust in Jesus as Lord, God gives us a new beginning, a new birth, a new identity. It says earlier in 1 Peter 1.3, the same passage we read during the worship service, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, so what is this new identity that we have in Jesus? Well, first of all, Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a chosen race. We are the picked out ones of God, a new ethnicity of people purchased, according to 119, with the precious blood of Christ. And according to 1 Peter 1.23, we have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Or to put it another way, as the church, as the people of Jesus, we are a new humanity in which the kingship of Jesus and not the color of our skin is what ultimately matters. He also says that we are a royal priesthood, that we may appear like nobodies in the eyes of the world. We may be citizens of a flyover state, but we are a kingly people because we belong to the great King Jesus who lived for us and died for us and conquered death and brokenness for us by rising from the grave in power. But he doesn't just say that we're a royal, a kingly people. He actually says we are a priestly people. We are a royal priesthood. Now, if any of you come from a Roman Catholic background, you have kind of an idea of how priests function. A priest mediates between God and man, and between man and God. Now, Peter doesn't say that we need a priest. He says that we are a community of priests. That through our gospel words and through our gospel lives, we mediate God's presence to a broken world so that they might come to know Him in faith and be forgiven and healed. The Bible then goes on to say that we are a holy nation. We are holy because we have been set apart for service to God. And like an apple tree produces apples, Holy people produce holiness. 
But we're not just holy as individuals. We are a holy nation. As God's people, we are no longer primarily Americans or Mexicans or Russians or Koreans or Chinese or Pakistanis. We are Christ followers. That's who we are. A new nation that lives on the face of the earth that wraps itself not in a political flag, but in the love and truth and grace of the gospel of Jesus. We are now a holy nation in Jesus. And then to top it all off, or maybe to summarize the rest, he goes on to say that we are God's special possession. And then in verse 10, that we are God's people of mercy. This new identity is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. If we will embrace him, if we will turn to him, if we will trust him, if we will believe in him, he will wash away all the filth. He heals all the brokenness. And he makes us into something new. So according to the first half of verse 9, he makes us into a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then in the second half of verse 9, he explains how that new identity is directly tied to our mission as God's people. He says again in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So first we see that God has given us a new identity in Jesus, and second we see that God has created us for mission. God has created us for mission. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We as a church are God's agents of mission in the world. That is who we are. That is our purpose. We have been brought into His marvelous light so that we might be reflective light to the world. We've been saved not only so that we might glorify Him, but so that we might lead others to glorify Him as well. And that means that if we are not living for the sake of the world around us, if we are not proclaiming His excellencies as the purpose of our existence, then we have utterly failed to be the people that God has called us to be, just like ancient Israel. If God has made us into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in order to proclaim His excellencies to our world, then that means that we are only most truly the church, the church of Jesus, when we are a church on mission, fulfilling its purpose. Now, I suspect that when I say that God created us for mission, for many of us, our minds automatically go to overseas missions, or to evangelistic programs or events. After all, when churches decide they need to emphasize evangelism, what do they do? 
They organize classes, they pass out tracts, they go street witnessing, develop new evangelistic programs, or they go on short-term mission trips. And I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but I don't think that is what Peter primarily had in mind when he tells us that we were created to proclaim the excellencies of our God. And that leads us to our third point. First of all, we see that God has given us a new identity in Jesus. Secondly, that God has created us for mission. And third, in the rest of 1 Peter, we're going to see that God calls us to fulfill our mission in the context of everyday life. God calls us to fulfill our mission in the context of everyday life. Let me start off by explaining this principle with a very simple illustration. In a few days, we're going to celebrate Valentine's Day, right? Now, husbands, I'll talk to husbands because I'm a man, okay? Husbands, if any of you think that being generous and loving and kind to your wife for one day out of the year will somehow make up for failing to care for her during the other 364 days of the year, then you need to know something. Are you ready? You should write this down. You are a terrible husband. All right? And if you don't believe me, you should ask your wife. Why is that? Because love is best shown, not in occasional events, but in the little things of everyday life, providing for the family, cleaning up after dinner, putting the kids to bed, a kind word, a quick back rub, putting the toilet toilet seat down. And even occasionally, a big romantic getaway. But one big date will not make up for a pattern of indifference. You can take your wife out on an awesome date. Nothing wrong with that. But the daily stuff has got to be the foundation. Peter wants to make clear that we primarily fulfill our mission in the boring, unspectacular, mundane moments of everyday life. Look at the verses and chapters immediately following our passage. We can't read it all, but I would encourage you later on today or this week, go read the rest of 1 Peter. But let me summarize it. He doesn't talk about tracts or evangelistic events. Instead, immediately after our passage, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, He talks about the importance of our conduct before non-believers. And then in verses 13 through 17, he talks about how we engage and honor those in authority over us. And then in verses 18 through 25, he addresses our work relationships. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he deals with the husband-wife relationship, including women with unbelieving spouses. And then chapter 3, verses 8 through 17, he addresses how we treat both each other and our opponents. 
So we're talking about work, marriage, everyday relationships. Those are all normal, everyday things that don't look super exciting. Missionaries don't tend to write updates about those sorts of things because they don't look particularly sexy. They look too dull. But that is where real mission happens. That is where the power of the gospel is most commonly meant to be put on display. Our everyday lives being transformed by the power of the gospel as we love God and we love others as ourselves in word and deed day by day. So first we see that God has given us a new identity in Jesus. Second, that God has created us for a mission. Third, that God calls us to fulfill our mission in the context of everyday life. And fourth, that God uses our everyday lives to provoke gospel interest. God uses our everyday lives to provoke gospel interest. Immediately after talking about us as God's agents of mission in the world, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he says this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For Peter, abstaining from the passions of the flesh and engaging in good deeds are not just issues of personal, private holiness. They are a fundamental part of our gospel mission. They are the practical, practical overflow and application of verses 9 and 10. That's why verse 12 says, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And when is it that we battle against the passions of the flesh? If you're like me, it is all the time. And when is it that unbelievers observe our honorable behavior and good works? Generally speaking, it's not here on a Sunday morning because they're not usually going to be here on a Sunday morning. It's in the unspectacular, mundane moments of everyday life that they see those things. In our work and school, it's when we're shopping at Walmart or Blue Stem, it's when we're having coffee. It's out there. That is where and when mission primarily takes place. And that's why Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then chapter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. And then finally, in chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, he says, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This last passage is especially incredible because it tells us that we should expect people to ask us about our faith. According to 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, our lives will actually provoke people to ask. And then when they do, you better be ready to give an answer. Now, over our 20 years serving in Spain and Mexico City, our primary impact on non-believers has not occurred primarily in formal meetings and through evangelistic events. It has happened through the intentional sharing of life, daily life with non-believers, and then training others to do the same, to view their workplace and their hobbies, and their school life, and their married life, and their single life as opportunities to live out the gospel of grace. So let me give a few examples of what that might look like. Some of it can be hard to imagine what that might look like. And these are all true stories, okay? One of our team members in Mexico City an amazing 22-year-old at the time, named Samantha Loesch, she was meeting with her Spanish-language tutor. And her tutor suddenly stopped and asked her, when I look at your face, I see hope. What do you have that I don't? And Samantha was able to share with her the gospel. That actually happened. Or it can look like this. A few years ago, my wife and I started doing Pilates together for my bad back. And yes, I'm man enough to admit <laughs> that I have a bad back. <clears throat> and out of the blue, the instructor suddenly asked us, where does your church meet? And then later on, when the owner's estranged husband died, she called us. Early on in our church plant in Mexico City, one of our members, Renee, offered to help a neighborhood association with a project. And that led to the neighborhood association inviting our new church plant to share with the whole neighborhood association about who we were and what we were doing. Or how about this? Years ago in Spain, shortly after arriving, Naomi went out to dinner with some unbelieving Spanish women. 
and she was the only woman not to bitterly complain about her husband. That's more Naomi's virtue than mine, just to be clear. (laughs) Seven years later, one of those women told us that she still remembered that moment. She had chewed on it for seven years. Or there was one time, I might have told the story before, but I'll tell it again. Naomi and I were walking through our neighborhood in Mexico City, and Naomi was really discouraged because we were trying to live our, our lives intentionally with this gospel intentionality, and no one seemed to notice. And on our way home, we stopped, stopped by our local chicken truck because we bought our fresh chickens out of the back of a truck, okay? <laughs> True story. <clears throat> and literally as Naomi's wiping away tears of frustration, the owner of the chicken truck looks at us and says, why are you two so different? He goes on to tell us that he'd been watching us, and he'd seen something special about our marriage, but he didn't know what it was. So we got to tell him it was Jesus. All right, now one last story. This is kind of a crazy story, but it's also a true story. About six months after moving to Mexico City, a neighbor, a next-door neighbor who we barely knew, suddenly came up to Naomi, my wife, out of the blue and asked her, who are you? And what angel or little star did you bring with you? She then went on to tell Naomi that the previous renters of our home had actually moved out because the man who lived directly behind us would scream and break glass every night. And since we arrived... The neighbor said that he had completely stopped, and she knew that it was because of us. As far as we can guess, the man was demon-possessed, and the presence of God had shut him up because we were there. I don't know how else to explain it. What I do know is that no matter what was happening, Naomi was able to tell our neighbor about Jesus. Because he's the one we brought with us, the Spirit of Jesus. We fulfill our mission in the most mundane moments of everyday life. And people are watching, even when we don't realize it. Now, this simple truth is both extremely challenging and absolutely liberating. It's liberating because it doesn't require you to be a super evangelist or to be able to strike up a conversation with anybody cold turkey, like Pastor Dave can, or to have to go through some highly specialized evangelism training, and it doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. So all you introverts, all right. It's something that all of us can do. It just requires us to live out the everyday moments of our lives with greater intentionality and purpose. It means that we have to live out our identity all the time. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. It's actually extremely challenging. Tim Chester, a mentor of mine from England, once shared how a man came to his church to try to convince them to join him in street preaching. Now, Tim wasn't opposed to street preaching, but 
Tim went ahead and shared with this, this man how their church tried to approach living out the gospel in everyday life. And after explaining to this man what that looked like, living intentionally in everyday life, the street preacher said, man, I'm not up for that. I'm not ready for that level of commitment. You see, the street preacher wanted to be able to do his evangelism, put his megaphone away, and go home. But in real gospel mission, the megaphone never gets put away. We are always bearing witness to Jesus, for better or worse, through our words and actions. That is what it means to live a gospel-centered life. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about all of that, but I would like to finish by clarifying three things that I think will impact how we live out these truths in real life, okay? Kind of three sub-points. First of all, we don't fulfill our gospel purpose by accident. It's not an accident. I would argue that gospel mission should be natural but intentional, We choose to have a coffee in the same coffee shop every day in order to get to know people. We choose to get involved in the lives of the parents in our local school or neighborhood. We choose to meet our neighbors. As God's missionary people, we need to recognize the network of people that God's already placed in our lives. And then we also need to rearrange our life patterns in order to rub shoulders with those who don't yet know Jesus, beyond our natural circles. So make a point of meeting your neighbors. Have lunch with some co-workers. Join a preschool play-op, a playgroup, assuming you have preschool kids. Otherwise, that'd be weird. Shop at the same stores. Join a sports team. The ideas are pretty much endless, and they can even be fun. Just make them purposeful. Make them part of the rhythm of your everyday life. Secondly, good deeds by themselves are not enough. Good deeds by themselves are not enough. If all we do is offer the world good works, then we are in danger of pointing the world to our righteousness instead of pointing them to the righteousness of Christ. And we are not the gospel. He is the gospel. The gospel is a message that has to be communicated if it is to be believed. However, and this is an important distinction, it does not have to be communicated all at once. You don't have to cram everything into a five-minute conversation. Okay? You don't have to stuff it down your neighbor's throat so they choke on it. If the gospel shapes our lives, it will season every conversation that we have. When my wife talks about parenting with non-believing friends, it is perfectly natural for her to share about what she has just read in the Bible about parenting, because that's who she is. It'd be weird for them to do that, but not for her, because it's who she is. When a neighbor is struggling with anxiety, we can share with them that there is peace in Jesus because we believe it and we honestly want them to find hope. 
when I have discussions about politics, I love getting to share how Jesus is my true king and the only genuine solution to the world's problems because he alone can transform our hearts. That's an actual political discussion. The real challenge is knowing how to apply the gospel in all of life and then to have the boldness to speak openly and graciously as a Christian in those daily moments. When the gospel is consistently applied to our words and deeds over and over and over again in the daily patterns of life, those moments end up working together to provide our friends and neighbors and coworkers with an incredibly clear, beautiful picture of the gospel. Final clarification. We don't do this alone. We don't do this alone. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I think that is the kind of thing that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is not an individualistic message. It is a corporate message. It's literally written to a group of people. I am not the church. We are the church. Together we have been called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we together might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So simply put, instead of going to have coffee alone, or joining a playgroup alone, or joining a sports team alone, or inviting your neighbors over alone, include another believer with you. And let the world see your love for one another. Be a kingdom of priests in the midst of Emporia or Chase County or wherever you call home. You might be surprised about the amazing things that God does as we strive together to proclaim His excellencies to our world. Let me pray. Father, may you be glorified in our world. May you be glorified through us. And may your excellencies be most fully known. In Jesus' name, amen.